that I prepared and taught before. But I want to I, I be God. I, I'm called by God to be his voice to you this morning. So you need to hear his voice. Speak what God has. God has see, God's alive and loves you. You know, my wife and I don't go through days when we don't say something to each other. We have some days we say more than others, but not, you know, we don't ever get up and we're going to go through a whole day. And I never talk to her and she never, she, if she gets up and goes through 10 minutes and does say something to me, something's wrong. I need to find out what's wrong, all right? God's talking to us. God is alive and he's speaking to you and he wants to communicate with you. God wants to communicate something very specific this morning and, and in this time that we have, not just today, but in the time in this study. And it's something you already know to some degree, but it's not what you know, it's what you don't know that you need to know. I need to go back over that. <laughs> what you know has you where you are. What you know has you where you are. Now let me ask you a question. Are you content with where you are in your relationship with God? then you need to know something you don't know right now. Are you, are you as free as you want to be? Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The, free, the freedom that you have right now is a result of the truth that you know right now. So if you're not as free as you want to be, it's a good rhyme, I guess, pretty good. If you're not as free as you want to be, then there's more truth you need to know. It's what you don't know that's keeping you from what God has for you. And what you know that you're not doing. But if you're not doing it, you probably don't really know it. If I could tell you there's three things that if you do them before midnight today, tomorrow you'll have a million dollars. And you believe me. You would find out what those three things are. And if, if you believed me, you would do them. Right? And that's the way the Word of God works. What you're doing proves what you believe. It's James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. All right, well, that's message number four. Matthew chapter 6, what I'm trying to say to you, and believe God wants to say to you, is how important, what did I say, 16, right? What did I say, 4? Whatever I said first. <laughs> Matthew 16. <laughs> Shows you're listening. God wants to take us to a deeper place of knowledge of what we're going to talk about. So Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> let me read through it, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. Verse 13, and when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I am, that I the Son of Man am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not prevail against you. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was, Je that, that he was Jesus the Christ. 
We started last week by going through a series of quotes of individuals in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, who, who were confronted with this issue or raised this issue, who is Jesus? Because that's the question he says here. Who do men, who do men say that I am? We brought out to you that people from all different walks of life, all different areas of ministry, including his own disciples, had on their mind, who is this Jesus? That even when he entered into Jerusalem, that was the subject of conversation in all the places in the city. That who is he? Who is this man? Who is he? Who is Jesus? And we talked about that. That is the question for the ages. And one of the signs of the time that we're in right now is it's not the question that's on the lips of everybody. It sounds irrelevant to most people because people in the world think, well, he was somebody that lived 2,000 years ago, maybe, and if he did live 2,000 years ago, what difference does it make to me who he is? That's because they don't understand who he is. But my concern is that you don't hear this discussion in the church very much. You hear disputes over doctrine, you hear discussions of all kinds of other issues, but not much talking or discussion about who is this Jesus. So we need to come to this point where we're conscious of this issue, but then Jesus turns to the disciples, his own men, his own staff, his own team, who, who've been living with him, seeing him do miracles, and he turns to them and says, okay, that's who they say I am, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question for the ages. It's the question that every one of us is presented with. If you try to avoid that question, you cannot avoid it because to avoid it is an answer to that question. Because it is a question that I don't, it's not a question I ask you, it's a question that God asks every person and confronts every one of us with. This question is, who is Jesus to you? And that's the question God's asking us to examine ourselves with. Who is Jesus? Well, I know he's the son of God. Yeah, but who is he to you? Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to me? Notice, Jesus made it personal. See, I grew up in church my whole life. I wasn't, you know, my parents weren't saved, and as, as far as I know, they weren't. They, if they were, they hid it from me. Uh, and the churches we went to, I don't think anybody in there was saved. But they were Christian churches, and I grew up in Sunday school. I went through, through the, 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 the Protestant version of catechism. I went through and, you know, studied all the lessons in the Bible studies and all that, knew the stories of Jonah and all those stories, you know. That. And, I, and I, then I, you know, got married, went to law school, became a lawyer, did all this stuff, still went to church, did all those things. I was a deacon in a church. One of the leaders in the church that we ended up in before. We, and, and, but to my knowledge, nobody was saved in that church. If you asked me who Jesus was, I could have told you doctrinally who he was, but I never knew him me, John. I never answered the question, who was he for me? I knew who he was historically, I knew who he was spiritually, I knew who he was doctrinally, but I never was presented with the question, is who is he for you? And that's what Jesus is asking the men that are on his staff. Who am I to you? That's the question we're going to look at because that's the question the Spirit of God wants to probe into our hearts, not to condemn us, but to open our hearts so that we might know Him better. The more you know of Him, the better off you are. 
the more you know of him, the more you will follow him and be faithful to him. The more you know him, the more he can work in your life and do through you. And so he's calling us to know him at a deeper level. And that's what we're going to study. All right. So last week we looked at, we looked at quotes, and we're not going to go back at those, from Pilate to, to Herod to his own disciples to the Pharisees saying, who is this man? Who is he? But the real question is, who is he to you? And who is he to me? Well, let's look at the answer today. We began to look at it last week. That was the question last week. Today we're going to look at the answer. Simon Peter, who was always quick to speak, answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So now let's go back to verse 16, because this is the answer that Peter gives. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him in the next verse, God, my Father, showed that to you. So last week we looked at the question, who is Jesus? Today we're going to look at the answer and the answer that God gives, because God's the one that showed it to Peter. The answer that God gives is this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there are many other answers that God could have given. I was praying yesterday, and just, I was actually just my own prayer time, just talking to God about some things, and the Spirit of God asked me a question about this verse. And I said, well, Lord, I want to talk to you about something. He says, but you honed in on this, something I never saw. Notice what he doesn't say. Because this is the answer God gives. He poses the question, and then he gives the answer, his answer, which I'll let you in a secret. It's the right one. God has the right answer. So, so now we have the, an, the, cheat, the answer sheet. You know, Boy, in school, if you could get the answers to the questions before the test, you had it made. Of course, it was cheating and it was illegal, but God gives you the answer before the test. Well, that's good. God gives you the answer before the test. And his answer to the question is, who is Jesus? Is he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And while I was praying yesterday, I felt the Holy Spirit ask me this question. Notice what he doesn't say. The answer that God gives to who is he, he doesn't say he's the Savior. Notice that? He doesn't say he's our Redeemer. He doesn't say he's our healer. Does that mean those things aren't true? Of course they're true. That's how we got here. And so when the Lord asks a question, he's not, by the way, he's not looking for information. God doesn't ask you questions so he can find out something you know he doesn't know. Do you understand that? That means he already knows the answer. He's trying to show you something you haven't seen yet. <laughs> which is why Jesus asked the question to the disciples because they thought they knew who he was. And this morning you and I are sitting here thinking we know who he is. But he's asking us, who is Jesus? 
So if he's asking us this question, he's trying to show us something we haven't seen yet. So if you sit here this morning and think, well, I know this, you will miss what God wants to show you. Notice what he doesn't say in his answer. He doesn't say he's the savior of the world. He doesn't say he's your redeemer. And I say, well, okay, Lord, he doesn't say that. Why doesn't he say that? Because savior and redeemer are things he did for us. It's not who he is. Now, by virtue of doing them, he is our savior, but it's not the essence of who he is. I want to go over that again because it's an easy thing to miss. Notice God saying, this is who he is. And when he tells us who he is, he doesn't do it by telling us what he's going to do for us. For instance, if somebody stops you in the street or you meet somebody at work or somebody you got a, somebody new or you're at a party or something and somebody says to you, know, you know, Joe, who are you? Most people will answer that question by telling them what they do. Well, I'm a pastor. That's not what I am. That's what I do. Now, I, what I do has a title, but that's not the essence of who I am. I'm a father, but that's something I do. I'm a husband. That's a relationship, but it's something I do. It's not the essence of who I am. Jesus saves you. He died on the cross to save you from your sins. He is our Savior because that describes what He did for us, but that's not... He was something before He was our Savior. He's our Redeemer but he was something before he was our redeemer. He's our healer. Those are all things he's done for us and does for us, and I'm not taking away from those, but if that's all you see of who he is, you miss who he is. In fact, if you don't get in revelation of who he is, the fullness of what he does for you will not hit you. You understand that distinction? So what, he's gonna, what God's answer here goes to who he is, not what he's done or will do. Now, I want to make clear, I'm not saying Jesus isn't our Savior. He is, but the title Savior describes what he has done for us. These titles don't describe anything he's done. It describes who he is, his nature, his essence. And this is what the church, by and large, is missing a revelation of. Because when you get a revelation, and I'm going to show you examples of who he is, it changes who you are, how you act towards him. Worship. Worship is not slow songs. Worship isn't even songs. It's often done through them. But worship is an attitude in the Spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, There's coming a day my Father is looking for true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And he explains why. Because God is spirit. 
So therefore, those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit is the realm that God exists in. And God has put that realm in you by putting his spirit in you. So we're studying on Wednesday nights. God has put that realm in you by your spirit being born from him and his spirit. That's why you've got to get, become more conscious of the spirit inside of you than of all the things around you. Because this is God in you leading you and guiding you and directing you and talking to you and answering you. And he, this has got to become louder than this. But worship is a connection with him out of here. And it comes out of seeing who he really is. Because when you see who he really is, you respond to that by worshiping him. We're going to look at some examples of that. But let's look at what he says, what God says about who this Jesus is. Not what he does, but who this Jesus is. The first thing he says is you are the, he is the Christ we looked at that last week. That is the Greek word Christos, which, comes, which is the Greek version of the word Meshua or Messiah in the Old Testament. It means the anointed one. We went back and we looked in Luke chapter 4 and we saw the reference to this because it comes out of Isaiah 61 and Jesus stood up in, in the synagogue once he'd been baptized in the river Jordan and filled with the Holy Spirit. He went off in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He went and began to do some miracles and came back to his own hometown, went into his synagogue, sat down in the synagogue and when the time to read was he stood up because he was a member of that synagogue. He asked for the book of Isaiah. He'd opened it up to what we call chapter 61 and he began to read the spirit of the Lord God is upon me and I shared with you last week I believe that when he said the spirit of the Lord was upon me the words me rang out because we know he read it differently now because now he was anointed before he wasn't anointed he was righteous he never sinned but he was anointed when the spirit of God came upon him when he came out of the Jordan River that's when the point of the anointing took place so before when he read these scriptures, he, wasn't, he was the son of God, but he wasn't, the, he wasn't anointed yet. And we know there was a difference because when he finishes reading them, he goes and sits down in all the eyes, it says, of all these men who'd been in there all their lives and seen him all their lives. And they'd heard these words all their lives. So you know what it's like when you come and sit in the same seat and you hear the same thing week after week. You kind of sit there and just kind of going through the motions. Something was different this time because their eyes were open. And they look at him. And they wondered who he was. Why? Because now when he read it, he was now the anointed one. And then we saw that that scripture tells us who anointed him. He's anointed by God the creator of the universe, with God's spirit. So he's come with a mission that God has anointed him to perform. That's why nobody could stop him. That's why when he finishes and leaves the synagogue, they want to stone him. And he just, they bring him out to the brow of the hill to throw him off so they could throw stones on him. And he just turns and walks right through them. They couldn't stop him. Why? Because of the anointing that was upon him. He was anointed, this is what I want you to see, we're talking about, he was anointed by God to do what he came to do. 
His battle with the Pharisees over and over again was that they thought he chose himself. And he said he had to show, I'm anointed by God. My father anointed me. My fa-. It's important to know who puts you where you are. It's important to know who you put you where you are. A number of months ago, I was at the end of a service, and I just felt, a, and I don't hear voices. There wasn't a voice out here. I just heard inside of me, I put you here. I said, okay, I know that. He said, no, 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 I put you here. I know, I know that. No, but when God says something over and over again, he's trying to show you something you think you know, you don't know. He said, no, I put you here. I heard it again this morning during praise and worship. I put you here. I. But you need to know who put you where you are. Because if you put you where you are, you won't have the confidence as you would if God put you where you're supposed to be. And every one of us has a place that God's assigned for us. Something to do. And when you found that place God has appointed you to do, there's peace. I don't mean everything goes well, but there's peace in here because you know God's got your back because he puts you there. This is why Jesus didn't rely upon his disciples. He used them and he needed them, but he didn't rely on them because at the end, they all forsook him. And he said, this is my most difficult hour and you've left me. They're all concerned about what's going to happen to them, but it didn't move him. He says, but I'm not alone because my father's here with me. The one that you need to know who's put you here. Jesus was anointed by the Father. You are the Christ. Now the next thing he says, and the one that's the Christ that's been sent here is the Son of the living God. What made that little baby so special in the manger? He couldn't do anything. I mean, he could do things, but nothing that would help us. He needed to be fed. He needed to be burped. He needed to be changed. Oh, that's right. No, he was a God chose to come in the flesh. And in the flesh, you've got to do all those things. Babies have to be changed. Babies have to be fed. Babies have to be comforted. Babies have to be held. You know, he couldn't go where he wanted to go. He was totally dependent upon his mother and father. Then why, why do we celebrate? It's because of who he is. It's not just any little baby. This is the Son of God. So this Jesus, God is telling us who he is. He is the anointed one. God's saying, I have anointed him to do what I've sent him to do. And the one that I've anointed is my son. When he came up out of the Jordan River in Luke chapter 3, I think it is. He's been, in several other accounts. He comes down to be baptized by John. Comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God comes down upon him and, and, and that's when the anointing takes place. And the clouds parted and a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The next chapter after this, there's a scene where, and we may talk about it, where Jesus is on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden, the glory that, is, that, that, that was set aside comes out of him. And he appears in all this glorified form. And Elijah and Moses stand there talking with him. And a voice speaks out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So what God is saying about this man is that this man is my son. And I have sent him to you and I have given him. What is the anointing? It's God's ability. 
I have given him my ability to do what I tell him to do. My power, my strength, my ability. That's who he is. And that's what God says about who he is. Now let's go on and look because that's great, but how do we get to that place? Verse 17. And Jesus' response now. So Jesus starts this conversation by saying, Who do men say that I am? They answer and say, Well, you're, you may be Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, you may be one of the prophets. Who do you say I am? That's Jesus' question. Peter stands up and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus is responding to him. And he says, Simon bar Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you. Now when Jesus says blessed, it's not like we do when you, somebody sneezed. And say, God bless you. That's just a ritual we go through. Jesus had power in his words. And he's saying, you are blessed. You are blessed because you didn't figure that out yourself. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But that's been shown to you, revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. So the next thing we see that Jesus is teaching us is this deeper understanding of who he is doesn't come by the work of flesh and blood. It doesn't come because you go and get 14 concordances and 35 references and you study it out and you've gone to Bible school and theological school and you sat in under a course by Professor so-and-so with 24 letters after his name and, you know, 15 robes with a long, you know, all this, you know, the beard out here and he says, I've done study of the Christology and this is what, the, this is what so-and-so says about him. Josephus says this, all these wonderful studies, there's nothing wrong with them, but they won't give you this revelation on their own. Because Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't show that to you. But it was shown to you by my Father who is in heaven. So this deeper understanding has to come by a revelation that God gives us. Well, at first, you know, that looks, oh, then there's nothing I can do. I just either, you know, our reaction is either, well, I just, you know, sit around drink coffee and iced tea and, you know, do about my things. And when God wants to show it to me, hey, I'm here, God. <laughs> now you're, you're in your lap because Jesus said and Pastor John said that this is only going to come by revelation. So, you know, uh, not my fault. I don't know it. It's your, you know, you show it to me. I'm here. I'm open, you know, Lord. Yeah, doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Do you ever wonder why? You probably wouldn't, but my mind works this way. So I, my, I studied in law school. One of the, my, this is going to sound strange to you. One of my favorite subjects was the Internal Revenue Code. Now, I wasn't saved yet. <laughs> the reason I liked it is because it was laid out rationally. It's not so today, but when, it, when I went to law school, it was. And so you could, if you needed to find out what the law was about something, you could figure out where to look, and that was basically it. And that's still true of most statute books. They're not exactly that way. But at least you've got some idea of where to look and say, okay, these are the sections that deal with the law of whatever. And you, so you got everything. And I would say, God, why didn't you lay the Bible out that way? Why don't you have a section in the beginning of what we need to know most, and it's all put together there, and then the things we need to know next. I, mean, I see some people going like this. Make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? And why? It's like he's hiding things from us. No, he's not hiding them. He's burying them. 
I'll, I'll tell you why. And this is, we're just getting a little coarse, but it's okay. It tells you, okay. A number of years ago, this is quite a few years ago, when our kids were small and, you know, and, and Christmas morning was always, it was a good time, you know. One day I got, a, I just, I had something special that they'd wanted and that they didn't think they were going to get. I don't know what it was, some game or something like that. And, and so I went out, I was almost at the last minute, I said, you know, I'm just going to just get this for them. And so they weren't expecting it, but they were kind of hoping. So I decided I'm not going to put this under the tree because it's kind of obvious what it is. So I'm going to hide it somewhere in the house. But what I am going to do is bury in the tree a little envelope with a clue in it. So Christmas morning came and they'd open their presents and, you know, they were happy, but you can tell they were kind of... <laughs> just hoping, you know, looking around. And they were all opening things. And it, it, what I felt was the best moment for us. Because, see, the reason... I'll show you why I did this because we got pleasure out of this. Not tormenting him. Let me show you why. I went over and I was looking in the tree. I just kind of looked in the tree and I, you know, oh, there's something in here. So I pulled out this envelope and I said, I wonder what this is. And I, so I turned to one and said, why don't you open it and see what it was. And it opened it and I would do clues that were rhyming. Which would say, if you're interested, well, I can't what it was, you might want to go and then there was some clue that might take them to the, 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 um, the trunk of my car. And they'd go to that and there'd be another envelope in there with another clue. And they'd have to sit and they'd have to discuss, you know, what, what is this? What does it mean? They'd figure out, they'd run someplace. No, that wasn't it. Then they'd run, and they'd run somewhere. I mean, they'd find the time they got through three of these, they're running all over the house. And they're working together trying to figure out what this is. And then they come to the place where I've hidden it and open it up. And so, you know, and this was great, called our treasure hunt. Now, I did that not because I'm trying to keep the present from them. I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't want them to have it. The desire that I saw stirred in them. Because Christmas morning you can get, you know, oh, that's nice, you know, and it's nice. You can tear through things. But this kind of drew it out. It, it, it stimulated their desire. And, and, and I watched the, the... So what happened is this became a tradition. And one year I decided, look, it's been too long a tradition. So I didn't do it. And they were very upset and disappointed. <laughs> no, it's not because they didn't get a good present. It was because they didn't go through that. God began to take me back one time. He said, son, the easy things that the lazy people get are on the surface. But the more powerful, significant things come only by digging. But you don't dig alone. The one who wrote the clues is living in you. And he wants you to find. So he's got clues saying, look over here. Look over here. It's in Matthew chapter 7. Just go... Because in the process of digging, your desire is pulled out of you. Gentlemen, that's why it's not so much what you do for your wife, it's the way you do it. It's the things you remember. It can be a little thing, but the things you remember tell her where your heart is towards her, not that you're fulfilling some obligation. And God's the same way in relationship. He says, if you seek me from all, with all of my heart. So there are things we can do to put ourselves in a place where God can give us this revelation. And one of the most important things you can do is sitting in your lap right now. is spending time in your word. Don't just read your Bible to fulfill some obligation so you can close and say, well, I read my Bible today. Check that off of the things, my to-do list today. 
Because that's like saying, let's say, get up and, good morning, dear. I love you. Check that one off. I did my duty today. That doesn't do very well. Well, it doesn't do very well this way either. Doesn't I get mad, but it doesn't develop relationship. So I get up in the morning first thing and just start talking to him. Say, good morning, Lord. Thank you for a good night's sleep. What a beautiful day you've given me. Thank you so much. I just want to walk through this day with you. Just begin to talk to him. This is the way I start talking to her. It's how it develops a relationship. And as I read my Bible, I'll sit down and I'll read it for different purposes. And say, Holy Spirit, open my eyes that I may see him. In fact, there's scriptures that say it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says one of my favorite scriptures, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared to those who love him. So your eyes haven't seen it yet, and there are things your ears haven't heard, and there are things that your heart hasn't even grasped that God has prepared for you because you love him. The next verse goes on to say, but they're revealed to us by the Spirit. But you've got to put a demand on him. You've got to expect him. In James chapter 1, James says, says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. That's all you got to do is ask. It says later, you have not because you ask not. Ask of God. But the condition is, you must ask in faith, nothing doubting. What does that mean? I must expect he's going to answer. So if I expect he's going to answer, I listen for an answer, and I look for an answer. So when I ask God, I want a deeper revelation. I want a greater revelation of who Jesus is. I now have to expect he's going to give it to me. So if I expect he's going to give it to me, I'm looking for it. Maybe today when I open the Bible, I'm looking for a deeper understanding. When I pray, I'm looking for a deeper revelation of who He is. And the more you're looking for that, the more hunger you develop for Him. Because the more, I'll teach you this principle, the more you think about something, the more important it becomes to you. Later on in James chapter 1, he talks about this principle, nobody ever sins unless you've been thinking about it. Now there's some things you can give into quickly. But any major thing, you've been thinking about it for a while. You've been meditating on it, planning, running it around your mind, and then the opportunity comes up. But you can do that same thing with knowing God. The more you think about Him, the more you talk about Him, the more you read about Him, the more you talk to Him, the more your desire for Him will come, and the more desire for Him comes in you, the more revelation He can bring into your heart. Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Well, let's look at some examples, because what I want you to see here, we're going to look at examples of people that knew who God is, knew some things about God, but what they discovered is that it took a revelation of Him to change how they see Him, to bring it, and the result of each one of these is they acted differently. So let's, for the first one, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Well-known story. I'm not going to spend time giving the background, but Moses was called by God to deliver the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Moses was raised in Pharaoh, the king's court, grew up knowing he was the deliverer. Forget the movies. They don't have it right. He knew he was the deliverer. He knew he was a Jew. But he took things into his own hands. And he tried to get the people to follow him, and they weren't ready to follow. So he had the right idea, but the wrong timing. Because first of all, he wasn't ready to lead them. 
and they weren't ready to go. So as a result, he ends up kicked out of Egypt, wandering around on the backside of the desert, ends up meeting a young woman named Zipporah, marries her, his father-in-law is Jethro, and now he spends the next 40 years taking care of Jethro's sheep on the backside of the desert. One day he's wandering along and he runs into Exodus chapter 3. So that's where we'll pick up. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mount of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he's walking along, and here he goes around a corner, around a rock, and here's a bush that's burning. Well, he'd seen bushes burn before, but this one doesn't, isn't consumed. It's not burned up. The bush was burning on fire, but the bush was not consumed. Verse 3. So Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn up. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside, there's a message in that. Well, there is a, let's stop there. Here God's giving him an opportunity for a revelation. God's presenting him with an opportunity. An opportunity from God's side is he's offering something. And I believe there are things God offers us all the time we don't take Him up on. There are opportunities God presents to us, and they can be small things. Sometimes we're looking for something like a burning bush, and God will give you somebody to reach out and say hello to, or call, or do some act of kindness to. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, you know, don't stop entertaining people, don't stop showing hospitality because some of you have entertained angels and you didn't know it. Little opportunities God brings across your path each day, they may be opportunities for something like this. And we look and say, well, that's not important. I'll just go do the important things. Notice God didn't begin to reveal until he saw that Moses chose to accept the opportunity. So Moses turns aside and it says that when God saw that he turned aside, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he says, here am I. So God wants to, he has a knowledge of who God is. But before God can release him to do what God's called him to do, he needs more than a head knowledge of who God is. He needs a revelation of who this God is that he's now going to represent. Because he's going to represent this God in front of Pharaoh, whom he does know who he is, and he has seen his power, and he's seen his authority, and he's seen the fear that this power and authority has worked on the Hebrew children, and he's now called by God to go confront this power, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And before God can send him to there, God needs Moses to know who it is that sent him. Not a head knowledge, not a theological concept, but a revelation of the God that's positioned him and sent him. And so now that Moses takes this opportunity, verse 5, and God says, Do not draw near to this place, but take your sandals off of your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So the first thing God's showing him is, I am a holy God. Take your shoes off. Because wherever I am is holy ground. Take your shoes off. Now, why take your shoes off? We studied this when we studied idols. 
Because when you worship God, God's saying, this is in the Old Testament, when you worship God, God's saying, where I am, I only want things I made. I made you and your feet. I'll take them. But your shoes, you made. Take them off. I don't want you having anything between you and me that you made. Oh, that'll preach. <laughs> this is holy ground. I am a holy God. Well, shoes are just, I mean, they're just little things. You know, it's just shoes. God, are you being legalistic? <laughs> now, God, you're being legalistic here. What does it matter? What does it matter whether I got my shoes on or not? It must have mattered to God. Because God said it's holy ground. There are little things in our life which say, well, that's okay. What does it matter? What does it matter? But if God goes after it, it matters because it's not the thing itself, it's the heart that it's tied to. Yes. He says, take your shoes off for the ground where you're standing. He says, don't come near it until you've taken your shoes off because the ground where you're going to stand is holy ground. So the first thing he's getting across to Moses is, I am a holy God. You can't just do what you want to do in my presence. You've got to govern what you wear and what you do by who I am. And see, we've gotten so far on the other side of le away from legalism, we think we can do whatever we want, act however we want, dress however we want in God's presence, and God's going to love He'll love us, but you can't have His fullness of His presence. See, there's a truth, because the Pharisees became legalistic about this. You've got to wear just the right clothes, just the right way, and just the right things, blah, 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 blah. And we in the church, we're now free. We don't, you know, we're not bound by those things. And I'm not looking at anybody. But I can come to worship God in shorts and flip-flops and, you know. And this is, this is the trend in the church today, is the casual trend. And I've had ministries come here and say, well, do you still wear ties in your service? I said, I absolutely do. I'm not old-fashioned. It's respect for the God that I've come to worship. Will God love us if I don't come in a tie? Absolutely. But it creates an atmosphere. And I've got sometimes women in ministry say, well, why do we have to wear dresses and slack? It's an attitude of respect. It's dressing my best because I'm coming to a God who's given me his best. I'm, I reverence this God. I'm not afraid of coming in if I don't have a tie on or have just the right clothes on. But it's an attitude of my heart towards him, showing reverence for who this God is that we're coming to worship. And the reason I believe with all my heart, we don't, so, don't see yet, yet, more of the power of God and the glory of God and the majesty of God is because we don't reverence his presence enough. I remember hearing John Revere talk about this. He said in, Acts, in, in the book of Acts, there's the story of two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who in church dropped over dead because they didn't tell the truth. But back in Eli's priesthood, his sons and the priests were committing adultery and fornication on the door of the church, and nothing happened to them. Why? Because the presence of God had left. In the presence of a holy God, you can't just act the way you want to act. You can't just, 
Can, could you see people in heaven walking around in their flip-flops and, you know... I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. What I'm saying is, it, what is the attitude... What does that say about where our heart is towards God? Towards our reverence towards Him. See, we've learned to focus so much... I'm way off my notes now. We've learned to focus so much on what God's given to me. And God's calling us to grow up and begin to start looking at what, who He is that's given all this to us. Who is this God that we serve? Who is Jesus to you? God showing Moses before you can do this for me, you've got to know, first of all, I'm a holy God. You can't just do what you want to do, dress the way you want to do, conduct yourself the way you want to do in my presence. It's got to be something that's honoring and respectful to me. Take your shoes off, he said. Take your shoes off. For the ground on which you, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Verse 6, now he's going to show him more. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. When he came up to the bush, he wasn't afraid. He just kind of, you know, hey, I wonder what this is. It's almost like he's curious. Oh, what's this? Wow, I've never seen something like this before. A bush. I've seen bushes on fire, but I've never seen a bush that doesn't burn. It's caught his curiosity. So he turns aside, and as he gets close, the bush speaks to him. God speaks to him. He stops. And God says, this is holy ground. Don't come near unless you take your shoes off. So he takes his shoes off. He says, I am the God of your father. Because the, the, the Egyptians believed in many gods. He's saying here, I am the true and the living God. I am not a different God now than I was to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's one God. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now he's got a glimpse and he hides himself and he's afraid. Not a, he, he, there's a reverence here. I can't just casually walk up to this bush now. This is the God. And it changes how he acts. talking about a revelation of him. Verse 7, The Lord said, Surely I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them, verse 8, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression from within the Egyptians have oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you. Now, this has not entered his mind yet. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So the next thing he's showing us, they're my people. I am a holy God. I am the God of your fathers. And these are my people. And you're to go to Pharaoh, and you're to tell Pharaoh, let my people Go. 
When you get a revelation of who he is, it changes how you act. I can't come in here, and I don't do this, but suppose I just really had a, in a bad mood. Somebody kicked my cat. I come in and just waiting to just... And I stand up here and I just let it rip. I could take God's Word and it could just cut you to pieces with God's Word. I live in fear of doing that. Not the wrong kind of fear. A godly fear. Because I am conscious that every time I step in front of you, I am speaking for God to people that are His people. You belong to Him. He died for you. But not only do I need to treat you that way, we need to treat one another that way. That person sitting next to you belongs to God. And the reason we don't, the reason we struggle with forgiving and the reason we struggle with being offended and all those things of the flesh is because we don't know who this God is, who this Jesus is that commands us to love one another. That's why we take it as a suggestion. It's kind of as if my mother told me. Because you grow up and you learn some cases to just kind of, yeah, okay, mom said that, but that way, we water it down. Yeah, I know I don't want to get caught not doing this. Who is Jesus to you when he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another? This is my See, it matters who gives the commandment. This is my commandment. So the authority of that commandment to you hinges on who he is to you because he said it's my commandment. So if you see him as just some religious figure, then it's some just religious figure saying, this is my commandment. If you see him as the historical Jesus who lived and died 2,000 years ago, then they're just the words, a commandment of somebody that lived and died 2,000 years ago, just like Herod or, 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 or even going back 200 years ago to George Washington or somebody like that. They're just somebody that lived and they said, this is what I want you to do. So you understand now who he is to you determines how you respond to him. Because he said, this is my commandment. Not this is a commandment. Not this is something else somebody else came up with and I'm endorsing. This is my commandment to you. It's interesting. Because when you begin to get the right attitude, Moses, when he's now leading the children of Israel, his own brother and his sister challenges authority. Who does he think he is? God prophesies through us too. God uses us too. Who does he think he is? See, Moses through this experience had become humble because he wasn't so concerned with who he is. He knew who God was. See, when you know who God is, you'll know who you are. When you really know who he is, when you know who Jesus really is, now you fit into the right spot. Now you know who you are. Moses didn't get angry at them. He didn't have a counsel to bring them before the court. God told Moses, come here. He stood right outside their, their tent. And God called Miriam and Aaron out. Psst, you too, come out here. And God dealt with them in front of Moses because God had put Moses in that place. Moses didn't protect himself, defend himself, promote himself because his eyes were on the God who put him there. 
Aaron and Moses, Aaron and, and Miriam's eyes were not on God, they were on Moses, and they compared themselves to Moses. What's so, why is he so much better than us? He wasn't. But God put him in that position. So Moses didn't defend himself. The one who put him there defended him. And now what happens is you've got Moses who's been attacked by his brother and sister interceding for them so that God won't destroy them. It all began with a revelation of who this God is that called him. Now we've looked before in Exodus 19, it's a story where God now, they've, they've come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, they've been out there about three months, they come around this same mountain. And God says to Moses, I want you to have the people consecrate themselves for three days. At the end of three days, bring them out around the foot of the mountain, put a barrier out there lest they try to come up here because this is holy ground and they'll drop dead on the spot because I'm a holy God and I'm going to come down on the mountain. It says, and Moses brought them out to meet their God. God wanted them to see a revelation of who he is and it says so that they would obey Moses whom God had put in charge of them. They wanted, God wanted them to see what he was like. And he, there's different aspects of God that he'll reveal to you based on what he knows you need to know about him. And so he came down in his fire, he came down in thunder and lightnings so that the people would have a reverence for him so that they wouldn't go do what they wanted to do. And they, feared, they ran away instead of coming to the revelation. They missed their opportunity for the revelation. And they said the right things to Moses. They said, okay, Moses, that's too scary for us. What here we'll do now, you go talk to God. You get in his presence because he likes you. We, we know you don't get burned up. And then you come tell us what we're supposed to do and we'll do it. Were they sincere? I believe they were. They weren't just outright lying. I believe they were sincerely looking at the motive of their heart right now, saying, oh, we'll do everything he says to do, we'll do. But did they? No. Why didn't they do it? And because the strength was not in their own determination to obey God. Their own determination wasn't strong enough to obey God in the face of the opposition. They meant well, they were sincere. But God knew what they needed he knew they needed a revelation of who he is. And that revelation would cause them to obey him and their obedience would get them through where they needed to go. God knows what we need. We can think we got everything we're all, you know, I, boy, I read my Bible, I'm determined, I am faithful, but you don't know what you're going to face. What would you do someday? I've gone through this. What would you do someday? If you wake up one day and this is no longer a free nation and somebody comes in and says, all right, we're lining you all up. Bill, you'd renounce Jesus Christ. You can sit here and say, oh, I wouldn't renounce him. You don't know what you do until there's a gun put to your head. All I know is this. The more I know him, the more I love him, the more real he is to me the more it's, hard, it's impossible to deny him. Not impossible, because Peter did it. But Peter didn't still have that full revelation. Even though he had this for a moment, it didn't last. Let's just quickly, well, no, we'll have to stop here.
Let's just finish reading this. So he says, you're going to go out and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you brought the children out of Egypt, you shall serve or worship the God, worship me on this mountain. The power to stay faithful. Because between this time, between this time, and when Moses finishes his life in ministry, he is going to go through trials and tests simply to do what God's called him to do that he would never imagine he'd have to go through. But he went through them and was faithful. And how was he faithful? Because he had a revelation of who his God is that had sent him to do what he called him to do. Jesus doesn't ask questions, certainly for answers. He's asking questions because he's getting a point across. He asked his disciples, that's significant. He's asking those men that had given up everything to follow him, all right, you're following me, you've been faithful to me, but who do you really say that I, who do you say that I really am? God had answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, that could only have come to you, that revelation could only have come to you by my Father. We're going to go on and look, because he's going to go on and say, and on that revelation is the foundation of my church. The foundation of the church is on the revelation of who this Jesus is. And when we get off that foundation and start building the church on anything other than who Jesus is, then we're building a foundation on sand and not on rock and it will not prevail. But that's for next time. Let's pray.